Good afternoon, Team Crew Lab community, and we're happy to welcome you back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War with our resident Russian subject matter expert, Dr. Yuval Weber. Yuval, good afternoon, and as always, thank you for your time today, and uh, we're definitely very excited to get another one of these out relatively close to our last one since we had a lot of catching up to do on the last one, but now we can really kind of focus in on a few core things that have developed since then. So... Among the things that we're gonna we're gonna go into today are three things. Um, they were probably on that list last time, buried somewhere in there um, in the middle. But now they're sort of coming into more focus. So, three things we're gonna look at today are uh, what does Victory Day, May 9th, look like now in Russia, uh, given mm -hmm. the chances that they're celebrating a anything that looks like victory to us at least are probably small. Although how they choose to define victory may have a slightly different sense. Also, what is up with Transnistria? There's been a lot of, as we were talking about last time, there's been sort of low-level violence. There have been, uh, you know, certain messages coming out about well, a lot of a lot of countries have told their people to evacuate, as well as there's been um, sort of I think mobile more mobilization of Moldavian um, military and uh, police support as well. I also I happen to see on on social media yesterday that Ukraine had erected some concrete roadblocks on some of the border crossings, which probably not a great sign. And then finally, what is Europe sanctioning today on or what's left for them to do on the Russian menu of things? So you've all, uh, again, good afternoon, and I'll turn it over to you to start going into this. So thank you. So uh, at least on what is happening today in terms of the, the Russian sanctions, um, Putin's birthday has not been canceled yet, but I think that'll be in the seventh uh, package uh, to follow today's sixth one. So what we have in in terms of over the past week, let's look behind, then look let's look ahead. So in terms of what's hap happening over the past, like let's say two weeks or so, or so uh, we had basically the the beginning of the renewed offensive in Donbas, which is to say that phase one of the conflict, the shock and awe, did not work. And so now they're trying, the Russians are trying to both take and hold territory along the eastern borders of uh, Ukraine. So basically the same thing as before, but just in a smaller area. And we'll see basically how well that's going. So part of that is one of their field commanders said that in terms of the new objectives uh, for Russian forces, that these would be at minimum three. So obviously, again, getting Ukraine to stop fighting, that's the big one. But in terms of what are their more limited, but still pretty fulsome objectives, full control over Donbass, land corridor to Crimea, and a possible land bridge to Transnistria, which is a breakaway region of Moldova. Now, Transnistria, which had not been in international news very much in recent years, except for uh, one of the, their major team, Sheraf Tiraspol, uh, making it into the Champions League and defeating Real Madrid, which is Pretty tremendous uh, accomplishment for any team, much less one from a place I assume most people in Europe had not heard of uh, before that moment. So in that regard, when Moldova, uh, you know, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Moldova was one of several, you know, the 15 republics. And that the people of Moldova had largely been Romanian speaking before the conflict, but it was a part of uh, Romania that had been conquered during World War II. And uh, Russian speakers were basically put into this region in order to Russify it in the decades after World War II. So when the Soviet Union fell apart, the Russian speakers, you know, Russian ethnic people who were still left, uh, declared their independence from Moldova writ large. And the Soviet army at 
in this area did not leave. So in effect, we've had the first frozen conflict of the post-Soviet period was one that was born at the beginning. That's this place, Transnistria. And there is the Dniester River. So the area across the Dniester River, that's Transnistria. So that's who these people are. So in short, what Transnistria has represented to, to Russia and to Moldova and to Romania is to be a showcase. The closer you are to Russia, the better that you live. But as the EU became a thing, and then Romania joined, and then Romania and Moldova uh, grew closer economically, the attraction of Moldova, and thus the attraction of Romania, thus the attraction of Europe, became much better, much bigger for Transnistria. So Transnistria has been pulled security-wise and politically, always claiming allegiance to Russia, but economically speaking, has been going the exact opposite direction. That's the basic context of what we're seeing right now. So in essence, the elites of Transnistria are now in a difficult position because uh, as is reported and alleged, uh, Russian military intelligence is starting up terrorist attacks or starting up explosions and so forth in Transnistria in order to create a larger conflict, a larger conflict that can be blamed on Ukraine. And if Ukraine is thus, you know, expanding its conflict, one that would uh, impinge on Ukraine's reputation abroad, the public support that it enjoys from lots of the world right now. And two, if there is a larger conflict and if Russian military intelligence is able to get Russian forces, as, which are technically speaking peacekeepers, as well as the local militia to open up another front, well, th what that would do was then ostensibly provide for these Transnistrians to cross into Ukraine, draw Ukrainian forces away from much bigger and fairly more important fights, and essentially expand the conflict writ large. That would not only make uh, Ukrainian forces less able to fight Mariupol, Donbass, etc., but at the same time, put this idea that the war is expanding into Europe, create much more dissension, create all these political difficulties. That's the basic context. So in this regard, what can we make of it? The number of actual Russian peacekeepers, which is unclear what is the level of their actual equipment, their level of training, et cetera, is 1,500 at this point. They're reputed to be roughly 10,000 um, people in the citizens' militia of Transnistria. I don't know, as not an expert on tra the Transnistrian military and police forces, whether they'd be able to invade Moldova, one, invade it successfully, two, and what they would do if they were to invade. And so what we have right now is a big sideshow from the larger conflict in Ukraine. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but this could be one of the things that is mentioned in uh, the upcoming May 9th uh, Victory Day celebrations. May 9th is the day that the Soviet Union, uh, you know, obviously prevailed in its conflict over Nazi Germany. And this is the biggest holiday in Russia. It is hard to uh, basically exaggerate the scale and size of this holiday. Because so many Soviet citizens died fighting and on the home front during World War II, every single Soviet family had someone connected to this. So it really is a, a big deal. Even in the, the post-World uh, uh, post War II period, when the... Um, the attraction of communist ideology started to wane within the Soviet Union itself, Soviet authorities turned to victory in World War II 
as the state building, the society building um, exercise, and really the thing that Soviet identity was really born, the war instead of the revolution. So it's a huge thing. So every May 9th, for those who have seen it, this is when all the military equipment goes across uh, Red Square. Putin and, you know, usually uh, some smattering of international leaders are there to, you know, politely nod and clap along. And, you know, the, usually the number of international leaders is uh, a good index of Russia's international standing. When Russia is friendly with everyone, lots of people want to attend. When Russia is not, very few people want to hitch their star um, to, to, to Putin's. So on May 9th, clearly this war had been set up to start on, and which it had been, it started on basically the birthday of the Soviet Red Army. So Armed Forces Day. Clearly this was meant to have delivered success by May 9th. You start with the, with the military, with the armed forces, you end on victory over fascism day. That was the big idea. There's no big victory that's available. So what is Putin able to deliver on May 9th? Now there's a number of options. One is nothing, just say nothing, talk about World War II. Um, that runs the risk of looking like a total loser. If everyone in the world is expecting some big, some big announcement and it doesn't happen, it's not gonna look good. It'll give the impression that this special military operation is open-ended and it'll essentially admit defeat. Now, another option, and it, as we sort of scale up in terms of big policy announcements, we have that uh, Putin can say, uh, victory is declared. We are going to hold on to all of our successes and that is going to be the end of it. That obviously runs the risk of the Ukrainians still have not run out of resources. They have not been defeated. And they are, um, as uh, we started to mention the other day, um, potentially the recipients of up to 16 additional billion dollars in new military assistance from the United States. There's still another three billion from the last congressional appropriation. There's all the stuff that the Europeans are, are providing. So Ukraine, in terms of its 2022 military spending, when taking all this thing together, is probably going to break into the top 10 worldwide. So the Ukrainians are simply not going to accept that the war is over when currently Russian forces are being attrited, their successes are not going very well, and the Ukrainians are definitely believing that counteroffensives leading to expulsion of the invaders is well within uh, their capabilities. So again, it has declaring victory and declaring that we're you know russia is going to take and hold its territories benefit you sort of bring an end to this drawback the ukrainians are certainly not going to stop and certainly the state of the war right now does not suggest that going to the bargaining table isn't either one sides because both sides want and feel that victory is plausible now a third as we go up in terms of policy size is that russia can declare that on May 9th, they're going to start to organize a series of referenda across these contested territories. And these could be various sorts of referenda. For Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, since these are, from Russia's perspective, already independent countries, these countries could essentially be announcing the referenda to join or to apply for uh, 
accession to the um, Russian Federation. This is, in fact, the procedure that Crimea underwent, in which first it declared its independence, and as an independent country, organized a referendum in order to have the people's will be recorded to then apply for uh, accession to the Russian Federation. So that's available for Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, at the same time, as in the news, uh, Finland and Sweden are applying to join NATO. The Russians could certainly spin this as lots of people are making choices. Why not the good people of Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics? They can also uh, organize a referendum in Kherson, which is in the south of uh, uh, Ukraine, which is under tenuous Russian control. Um, and they could be applying to essentially do what Lugansk and Donetsk currently are, which is to apply to be um, independent people's republics. They could just declare that. And basically the referendum is whether the people there want that. Fourth, and this is why we started with Moldova, is the people of Transnistria, again, could suddenly be told it's in their best interest that they want to declare independence from Moldova, a formal independence that could then basically allow them to bring in external troops. So again, varying levels of plausibility, varying levels of difficulty in terms of organizing, but that would be something of which these separatist held or Russian army held areas could then essentially create additional uh, territorial and constitutional crises uh, for the Moldova and Ukraine and for sort of larger Europe. Finally, biggest thing that Putin could announce is the special military operation is over. They overfulfilled the quota in terms of success, and now they are declaring war. War on Ukraine. That in essence, the special military uh, operation has been completed, but due to NATO's intervention and American intervention, so on and so forth, um, that the war has expanded due to not just like the the evil of the Ukrainians, but the dastardly, devious nature of NATO and the Americans. And so therefore, Russia has to declare war on Ukraine in order to have general mobilization and to convert the economy onto a wartime footing. That would basically be saying there is no, there's no future. Russia is going to throw quite literally everything it has to winning this war within the next couple weeks or months. Drawbacks. The current conscript class has only just begun, and so the current conscripts won't be available until later this year uh, at the soonest. End of the year really is much more plausible in terms of a rushed schedule. The other side of it is uh, Ukraine is fighting for its lives. Unclear what's the level of true enthusiasm within Russia for actually doing more fighting. It's unclear whether reservists are going to be enthusiastic about going to the front lines with uh, Ukraine given that they know there's 20 billion dollars plus of military equipment coming in the other direction to get them directly it could also raise the specter of um attacking as russia said it's well within its right to do military aid that is coming from outside ukraine into ukraine that would immediately raise it to a level of what does a, a russian attack on nato forces directly do if the mutual deterrence has so far uh, worked. NATO has not attacked Russian forces directly. Russia has not attacked NATO forces directly. Is that something that Putin is willing to escalate in order to see what, um, what basically the other side is really willing to do? And so that's what we can see 
for Moldova, looking backwards, May 9th, looking forwards. One, and so finally, the, you know, the thing that we were talking about earlier is uh, the sanctions package that was announced today uh, by the European Union. Now, this is in the in the realm of who's, you know, it'll be rolled out and everything the European Union announces is something that all the 27 member states have to agree to before it actually happens. First and foremost, the big news of the day, uh, phased oil embargo. And that would be um, already Hung Hungary and Slovakia said that they can't do it, but the EU said that they would give an exemption for those two countries. So for the other 25 uh, countries, um, the EU proposal is to phase out oil imports from Russia over the next six months. And this would obviously be meant to start to eliminate uh, the sources of revenue that Russia uses in order to fund its war uh, efforts. Additionally, uh, they are going to de-swift, as it were, uh, Russia's largest bank, Sberbank, and a few other big banks as well. This would be one of Russia's last lifelines in terms of being able to communicate even to um, countries that are not part of the sanctions coalition. SWIFT is just the way that banks talk to each other. So this would make it, instead of computers talking to each other, people have to pick up the phone and talk to each other. Uh, they're also going to target Russia's broadcasters abroad and go to um, numerous uh, other personal sanctions. And that basically is the, the state of the conflict over the past week. Russia is trying to expand the war in order to create war scares across the rest of Europe. And the idea that Ukraine cannot contain uh, its conflict. They uh, have a big decision to make in terms of what happens on May 9th. And between what is happening in the U.S. Congress and in the European Union, more aid is going to Ukraine, less money is going to go into Russia. And that's basically trying to also shape what are uh, Russia's war aims. As soon as they end this war, the sanctions start coming off. And that's basically the, the churn uh, underneath the water that uh, the West is trying to produce for Russian policymakers. And I think that's a good place to end the, uh, the monologue. Okay, no, great. And, and so uh, I guess I, I, the first question I have for you is, I was trying to figure out in my mind how to phrase this. And I, I was first looking at what, what does logic sort of indicate to you might be the choice, uh, you know, which of the decision points on May 9th. But then as, as I think we've, we've all seen and, and even I recall to our interactions on the, uh, you know, on the war game run by the War College here recently, logic doesn't necessarily enter into it, right? There are certain, there are emotional and historical and other, and other, you know, psychological, what have you, drivers going on inside Putin's mind. So probably not the best way to phrase it. So I guess how I'll say it is, what is, just what is your sense of which way, which of those options Putin might be leaning toward? Is there any indication that he's favoring one over the other? Um, is it just going to be a roll of dice, see what happens that day? What are your thoughts? It seems that at minimum the the referenda seems to be the escalation. And that's and so Putin's real success over the past 20 plus years is having confidence that tactical escalations will not be met by, how to put it, will not be met by concerted uh, reaction from abroad. Obviously, this entire war was a gigantic strategic mistake leading to many numbers of tactical mistakes down, down the line. So in essence, 
I think the question that Putin is asking himself is, was this war in terms of like what the West is able to do in terms of getting together, was that a one-off in terms of their unity? If it's a one-off, then we can take another couple of little bits of Ukraine, basically fight for the rest. And, you know, within a couple of weeks slash months, this will peter out in terms of like uh, Western assistance for Ukraine. We'll end up having totally crushed our economy, broken our society in a number of ways, but at least we have a couple hundred square miles additional of uh, Ukraine. That seems to be like a plausible, given the, the range of other options, um, uh, off-ramp. How much, you know, and something would be like, if let's say 22 and a half, 25,000 Russian soldiers have died, basically is that their sacrifice? Seems plausible. Um, certainly Rus Putin doesn't really seem to care all that much about the Russian economy. You know, if the people complain, it's just because they're ungrateful. So that again seems to be quite uh, quite enough. Organizing the other referenda that I mentioned, just as possibilities in Kherson and in Transnistria, um, those would be bigger and more difficult things to do, but you know, perhaps in for a penny, in for a pound. So altogether, the danger of declaring war and general mobilization is that the people were not prepared for war. And general mobilization would mean that this special military operation has in fact gotten too big. Again, the, the media machine there can say, you know, we we succeeded, but it was only like the, the deviousness of NATO, which is forcing this. They're creating the proxy fight. You know, they're gonna fight to the last Ukrainian. And again, part of that is completely denying the agency, the sovereignty, like the humanity of Ukrainian people, which again, Russian media, totally okay with. But are the potential consequences of expanding the war worth it? That's that's why I think you know the referenda is more likely because at that point, that's essentially still leaves a lot of room for maneuver. There's not much else beyond declaring war and general mobilization after that. At that point, it really is, we start to talk about strategic level weapons. And so I think they want to give themselves at least something to go into before that we get to that. That day is coming sooner than we all think. So um, definitely, again, curious may not be the right word, but it will be telling what 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 happens that day, what comes out of uh, um, the Kremlin's mouth. So actually, you mentioned, uh, you know, sort of a and the tacit admission of a strategic mistake and, you know, the possible discontent internally with um, with, you know, sort of tacitly showing lack of progress or or escalating. Um, I know you've probably seen some uh, some tenuous reports of uh, of discontent inside some of like the military and security folks inside Moscow that that they are saying this has been a strategic mistake and discuss possible discussion of removing Putin from power. I realize these are very tenuous, but I'm wondering if if you had uh, any any thoughts or whether there's any credence to be lent to these or if these are probably just, you know, some sort of stray voltage coming from um you know, non-viable sources. So sure, it, it could be wishful thinking. Uh, hopium or copium, uh, I think are the, the actual scientific materials that these are made of. Um, think about it like this, the Russian political system requires Putin. Not so much that because, you know, the, the people keep demanding more Putin for six, 12, 18, you know, infinite years. But Putin has created a political system 
that requires him and only him to be the leader. And if you remove him, then all the sort of bureaucratic internecine battles would basically rise to the fore. And so in essence, before Putin came, was what Russians called time of troubles, which had a historical time from after Ivan the Terrible, he died without leaving an heir because he killed his son who was the heir. And before they were able to put in the, the Romanov dynasty, there was a civil war, there's Polish invasion, the Poles almost put their king onto the throne. So in essence, the Russian elite needs one strong leader. Whether that leader is successful or not is a separate question, but one person. If you remove that person, all hell will break loose. In the last 10 years, they've also put million and a half, up to two million people under arms whose sole professional objective is regime stability. So they will beat up and arrest and you know send to prison as many people as is necessary in order to maintain regime stability. So whatever happens, it really has to get far, far worse for that to even be plausible. And I would not think we're anywhere close to that. Yeah. It, you know, when I read it, it certainly seemed like kind of uh, wishful thinking, um, you know, but given the, the dearth of information coming from inside the country, I couldn't dismiss it necessarily out of hand, but uh, it, it does seem uh, a little bit too good to be true that somebody else would sort of solve the problem for the rest of the world. Um, I, so I want to, I guess, um, last question I've really got is back to that, you know, should the on the menu of options, the expansion of the war into Transnistria slash Moldova be something that comes forward um, with a messaging aspect that, you know, kind of blaming Ukraine that they they've let the war spill out beyond their borders. Do you see like is anyone going to anyone outside of really the Russian population that this is targeted on? Or is there going to be any credence to that? And I ask because in the Russian sort of messaging, you know, media diplomatic campaign seems to be getting worse, not better. And I, I say that because, uh, you know, Sergey Lavrov, our old friend, right, um, mm. recently managed to take Israel off the fence um, by I, I think he noted that Hitler also had Jewish blood or something to that effect. Uh, you know, ergo, you could not simply say that because some Ukrainians are Jewish, they are not Nazis, you know, like. And I, I believe you could, like Israel's like uh, talking about delivering now, not necessarily offensive weaponry, but some sort of defensive uh, systems and capabilities. You know, like this seems like just in, uh, escalating self owns every time they do this. So could if if they try and stir something up in Transnistria and send forces into Moldova, does that become another self own? And is there a any any way that anybody outside the Russian population, which has been put in a purpose in a deliberate bubble, mm. at all at all sees this as being something that Ukraine is culpable for, or vice just more of the same from Russia. I think the unsatisfying answer is that the Russians, I think, believe their own information efforts first and foremost, and their belief is that they are the masters of escalation and de-escalation. That they're the masters of the information space in because the United States and NATO and, and Europe have to do so much coordination and it's usually so slow and plodding um, that they'll be able to dominate. If they create a crisis, that it'll be up to the others to solve. And essentially that will bog down uh, Gulliver. Like that seems to be what they're going here. 
In terms of, you know, attacking Israelis, and you know, Lavrov had said the worst anti-Semites are Jews because they go around making other people hate them. And so that's essentially the way that they, the Jews, win. So that, I think, Sergei Lavrov is many things. Uh, deeply immoral, that's one. I mean, he goes in whichever direction he needs to go. But he's not a real dummy. He doesn't have real power. He just goes in whichever direction he's uh, he's pushed. That to me is actually a, a really um, dangerous sort of thing to say because it suggests that the level of nationalism within Russia, which is already high because of the hatred of the Ukrainians, that this is basically, you know, in case of emergency break glass, Putin for more than 20 years has avoided anti-Semitism, at least at an official level, like across Russia. He said a number of times that, you know, he respects Israel, that one of the problems of the Soviet Union is that it had anti-Semitism, which created the outflow of, you know, many talented people. And so Judeophilia is also like, or I guess philo-Semitism is sort of like as weird, if not just like a little better, I guess, than anti-Semitism, but it's the same othering. What Lavrov attacking Israel suggests and basically saying that only Russia is capable of defining what was the Holocaust and what it means is that they're thinking we really need the entire population to get angry and frothing at the mouth. And this is the lowest common denominator. Go after the Jews. And this will basically make it like the bottom of the Soviet period, like the bottom of the imperial period. And that suggests that Russia is uh, running out of ideas and going to like the nastiest ones. Yeah, not a, not a satisfying answer, but it, it does seem to be um, becoming more truthful. And I, I think in in some other, I think we've seen examples of this starting to get, you know, not just reflected, but documented more and more on the battlefield. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if you follow some of the feeds that do these translations of intercepted Russian communications, um, you know, but there's a lot of ones that are that are rolling out and sort of in more frequency where you have soldiers calling mom and pop back at home and, you know, talking in in gleeful terms about, uh, you know, torture, abuse and or murder um, and that that otherization, the, the extent of that, that's only sort of hinted at in those captured communications um, does seem to indicate that there there's there's a lot more poison inside the the borders of Russia than than we probably have a good idea of. And that that is a concerning thing in terms of trying to find a way to stop the war or end the war. Nothing good is coming. Uh, <laughs> what is the what is the rate of it getting worse? Yeah, and uh, and in terms of it getting worse, you know, another interesting um, little excerpt from those it translated things, which I think we had uh, we gone back and forth on Twitter a little bit about was uh, this notion from a Ukrainian military advisor that there were indications that the Russian military in, in eastern Ukraine is preparing for a zerg rush to try and get some sort of battlefield gain. And for those in the audience not necessarily familiar with the term, um, uh, the Zerg Rush is Zerg Rush is a tactic from the old computer game StarCraft, and uh, it's basically taking a uh, a technologically unadvanced, untrained, but cheap and readily available swarming force, and just throwing bodies at the problem until something breaks through, and you simply overwhelm with numbers, and the. The fact that, that, you know, they're talking essentially now about Russia using human wave attacks 
um, to just throw bodies until something finally punches through is, uh, um, you know, um, Easter eggs for old computer games aside, that's also a very disturbing implication about how much bloodier things could get. Uh, I think the last time we saw human wave attacks was Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah, I think that's how, yeah, that's correct. Uh, which is insane. And so for those, again, who are not familiar with a Zerg rush, I think the older phrase was probably a bum rush. Uh, when you're trying to overcome like a uh, security at the door. That, that term probably has a, a, a certain resonation with people from, uh, whose peak years were the nineties and the two thousands. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you know, all, all joking aside, you know, when I saw that, that in the translation, I'm like, that that is literally throwing bodies at the problem and not caring how many people die um which uh, again dark implications for uh for the battlefield the next few weeks if if that's how they decide to try and get some progress uh, and that unfortunately may be where those where the fresh class of conscripts may be rushed a little too i mean conscripts shouldn't be going to the war zone in any case but if it's a existential fight then it may be the the guys who go from home to the barracks, to the battlefield in in weeks rather than years. Yeah, and I think you made this point in the last episode. Like even the most rudimentary, minuscule training regimen, it takes time, right? You know, it, it, and you know, I, I look. I'm I'm not sure what the the Russian conscript, you know, program of instruction is, but on the U.S. military side, it still take. You know, it takes you several weeks to just get through basic training, and then it takes you a few more weeks to give you some, you know fundamental um you know if you're infantry fundamental infantry skills to do like the very basic the most minimal part of your job that still takes time mm-hmm. um and and i think on the timeline of the conscript class for what like a little over a month into where they would be uh i and i'm i'm, I'm guessing the russian training regimen is probably not as intensive in those four weeks as a as a western or american one would be well we're seeing on the battlefield what is the result of it? So yeah. So uh, again, may the the Zergresh will may be coming, and it's 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 not. It, we think we've seen horrible things coming out in terms of pictures and videos up to this point. Uh, we probably haven't seen anything yet. If that's how they decide to go after it, yeah, because then it'll look like in effect World War One. Of uh, there's a technological and human mismatch, and like that's going to be super bloody. Ooh. All right. Well. On, on that note, again, thank you, uh, Dr. Weber, as always, for your time. And uh, you. for our, our audience members, um, by the time this posts, we'll probably have already, we'll have done our, our next upcoming broadcast, but we hope you do listen to the recording or watch the YouTube video because we're going to have the CEOs of not one, but two of the MEF information groups coming to talk to us about the information domain and how uh, how the, the MIGs help the Marine Corps one, uh, you know, gain some advantage in that in that space, but also really talk more about how information feeds into all the different warfighting functions across the Marine Corps. And as we've seen on the battlefield on Ukraine, you know, in information is a key arm of 21st century warfare. And, you know, depending on which side you're on can be used really well, or uh, if you flounder at it, it can it can have some blowback against you. I'd also note that on, on Thursday, we'll have another Middle East Studies research talk which, um, which I don't think this was sort of deliberate, but the theme sort of ties in well with the focus we've been doing on the war in Ukraine, where we're going to have Dr. David Mallow talking about the foreign fighter experience in Ukraine. And we know that both sides have 
recruited or at least said that they were going to recruit foreign fighters to bring in and augment their forces. So he's going to talk to us about that. And then on Friday, we have another broadcast with Dr. Um, Marcus Gorenson, who is from the Swedish Defense University, um, who we have a sort of a budding relationship with. And we'll be doing some more stuff with him here in the near future. But he's going to talk about Russian military thinking. And then for those of you following the uh, Down the Rabbit Hole series, we may have some uh, have some unique broadcast locations um, here coming up as well to uh, sort of at, at the very minimum, we'll probably have some different backgrounds to show you, but more on that to come. But all right, you've all again. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of the day and we'll see you on the next one. Ian, always a pleasure. Take care. Thanks. You too.